It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 103 of the Night Talker. At 1045, where are we at in society? We have a new low in degenerate gambling that was busted by the Popo. Can anyone say backyard volleyball? At 1030, the ACC may have signed its own death warrant earlier today. At 10.15, another sign that Sean McVay may not be coaching the Rams much past this season. And coming up in seconds, we preview the upcoming Longhorn football year on the eve of that opener at home against Rice. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at CourtesyWave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. I don't know about you, but if you are a Longhorn fan, like myself, I think you're pretty giddy about the start of the 2023 college football season. Yeah, I understand that there were games last weekend for week zero. Those games mostly sucked. Yeah, I understand there was a game last night between Utah and Florida. That game also sucked. And yes, of course, there are some games tonight too. But like most Longhorn fans and those who root for other schools and athletics departments, your season begins tomorrow. For the Texas Longhorns, that is a 2.30 kickoff against the Rice Owls at DKR, Texas Memorial Stadium. Why 2.30, you may ask? This is a bad opponent. It's the first game of the year. This is a game that traditionally... For all the negative things we have to say about LHN, a saving grace is that we could always count on that first craptastic opponent, usually at home, happening at night. Since it is early September, after all, which means that there's a good likelihood that things are still really hot outside. And sure enough, the heat will be a factor tomorrow. But unfortunately... Fox has decided to flex into that game and will be carrying it live at 2.30 Central Time. So we're SOL on that last home opener on LHN happening at 7 o'clock at night. That's all right, though. Steve Sarkeesian has been preparing his guys for this moment and I think also the heat that they're going to be dealing with in Tuscaloosa next weekend, too. It's why we've... Received practice reports following those guys being out there in the middle of the day to understand that there is an element of heat that they will have to deal with and to make sure that their bodies are adjusted properly. So while for myself and my family and a lot of other people sitting in the stands at DKR tomorrow are going to be sweating our butts off, yeah, the players may be sweating too, but they'll be more acclimated to it than you or I. But I think the reason why Longhorn fans are much more optimistic this year, even though we are in the season of optimism, is because things seem to be aligning nicely for this football team and what they might be capable of in their final season in the Big 12 Conference before they and Oklahoma move to the SEC for that 2024 football season and beyond. And while you can look at External factors 
as reasons why the Longhorns have a chance to accomplish something special this year. And those certainly exist, and we will get to them shortly. It really begins internally. At the top with Steve Sarkeesian and him insisting throughout the offseason that this is as comfortable as he's been with a roster since serving as a head coach in major college football. And that he feels good that he finally has his roster in place to do what he would like on both sides of the ball. Really all three facets if you count special teams. And for Sark, who obviously played quarterback in college, I think he earned a cup of coffee or two at the NFL level, but has obviously been an excellent offensive play caller since then and developer of quarterbacks too. He needs to look no further than the commitment that Quinn Ewers seems to be making. A process that started after the end of the regular season last year, prior to the bowl game. We see Quinn Ewers come out against Washington, and even though Texas loses that game, disappointing loss, but just another Alamo Bowl, Quinn Ewers looked like a completely different player. Not only in terms of his style of play, but literally physically he looked different. A guy that may have gained somewhere between 10 and 15 pounds during the season. How the hell is that even possible? To somebody who had really slimmed down and looked like he was in really good shape and was moving like it too, by the way. Nobody is ever going to confuse Quinn Ewers for Michael Vick for a variety of reasons. Yes, I understand. But in terms of that dual threat nature, Quinn Ewers has some athleticism and can move around and can make some plays with his legs when need be. That had gone down throughout the second half of 2023, really after that Oklahoma game, 2022, excuse me. But even that was a little bit more evident against Washington. And by all accounts, and that includes me having the pleasure of speaking with him at Big 12 Media Days back in July, that dedication, that commitment, still seem to be in place. And even though he is not the most brash dude when he's speaking with the media or others, fairly subdued, which is fine. You don't need your leader to be that colossal colossal alpha a-hole. They can be that also. Michael Jordan, obviously, one of the great examples in sports history of that. But Quinn leads with a sort of quiet confidence, and he has gotten more vocal in the practice setting as well which I think is a potential great thing for a program that needs guys to step up in leadership positions, especially with Roshan Johnson and to a lesser degree, Bijan Robinson no longer being a part of the program. Those guys now earning NFL paychecks. Bijan, the starting running back at Atlanta. Roshan may not be long before he's starting at running back for the Chicago Bears. So Steve Sarkeesian looks at that sees that his quarterback is now completely bought in and is evolving like a guy who is taking the process much more seriously. And that already puts them a leg up on a lot of the competition they'll be facing this year. Yes, even Alabama. I get it. Alabama is replacing five stars with five stars. But Alabama is inexperienced at quarterback right now. They did announce, or I guess it came out a little bit earlier today, that Jalen Milrow will be the starting quarterback for Alabama against their scrub opponent tomorrow. And you may see all three quarterbacks play at some point because it will be a blowout. 
But there is some uncertainty as to Bryce Young's replacement, even in Tuscaloosa, with Ty Simpson and Tyler Buckner backing up Jalen Milrow right now. But across the Big 12, inexperience is a common theme amongst the quarterbacks that you look at. There are some exceptions. I understand that. Baylor, Texas Tech, although their guy seems to get injured every other game. Kansas State also returns a starting quarterback. So does Kansas. But there are a lot of teams in this conference that don't. Like even Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma. Like, yes, he's a returning quarterback and he's got a bunch of skins on the wall. And maybe this is selfish thinking here because he didn't play against the Longhorns in that Cotton Bowl blowout in Dallas in early October. But even Oklahoma, like they know what Dylan Gabriel can be, but is he the right guy for this team? I think we will uh, find that out over the next couple of weeks and excited to do so. So Sark looks as his quarterback and his confidence. What other positions does he look at specifically on the offensive side of the ball and beam confidence? I know you have some ideas. I have some ideas too. And guess what? We're going to talk about that. Coming up on the other side. Yes, it is a full breakdown of this Texas Longhorns roster. We will move elsewhere on the offensive side of the ball. Coming up next. And why might this year be Sean McVay's final season as the head coach of the LA Rams? An unfortunate injury as well as some bizarre conjecture seems to point to him beginning to lose control of a team that just a couple of years ago he did lead to a Super Bowl title. You're listening to The Night Talker here on 1027 ESPN. It's The Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's The Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back on a Friday edition of The Night Talker, spent last segment getting into why Steve Sarkeesian and his football team are confident about what they can accomplish in 2023. It starts not just at the top of the head coach, but also the guy that he is most responsible for the development of. That would be the quarterback position. Quinn Ewers, that guy, looking like a completely different player right now. And even though there are a lot of familiar faces on the offensive side of the ball, some new additions also bring cause for optimism. How about we start with Some of the guys who will be catching passes from Quinn Ewers. A receiver group, and we'll go ahead and lump the tight ends here too, that may be as talented as any position group on this roster. A lot of people arguing that this Texas wide receiver room, one of the best in all of college football, at least has the potential to be that. Of course, you have returning guys like Xavier Worthy, had a bit of a down sophomore year. People saying that there was a broken hand in play. I've heard differing things. It may not have been a broken hand, but at the very least, it was a bruised hand, which of course does affect your ability to catch the football. But let's also not forget that even in his stellar freshman campaign, Xavier Worthy did lead the Big 12 in drops. Yes, there were more targets there, but he also did drop the football a fair amount too without said broken hand. Jordan Whittington deciding to return for his final year of eligibility is massive. This guy, in some ways, is a Will Fuller starter kit, but I think he's even maybe got a little bit more versatility in that. Maybe less of a downfield threat and more of a guy who can do a lot all over the field with where he catches the football or maybe even occasionally 
receiving a jet handoff or something along those lines too. Remember, he did a lot of that in high school. We saw that on display in that high school state championship game his senior year where he broke all sorts of total yardage records. And then you have A.D. Mitchell, the transfer from Georgia, and a guy who at times has had difficulty staying healthy and thus on the field, when he is out there, is clearly electric and was a big reason why the Georgia Bulldogs went back-to-back over these last two seasons. He decided he wanted a fresh start somewhere, and yes, he chooses Texas. And I'm on the record of saying this now a couple of times. I believe by the time it's all said and done, A.D. Mitchell will have established himself as the number one wide receiver in this core. Even with Xavier Worthy, and he's going to benefit greatly from not receiving nearly as much attention from opposing defenses because it is a bit of a pick-your-poison and they can't just laser focus on him at all times to go along with some of the other dudes that require that attention. Even all of that said, I think A.D. Mitchell is going to separate himself from the rest of the pack. Some other guys to keep an eye on in that receiver room. How about Isaiah Nayor? When they lost him to that knee injury in fall camp last year, that was a huge blow and really affected what Texas was able to do as a passing attack. You lose a guy who is a big-bodied receiver who can also run away from defenders too, improved as much at his previous college stop. Will he have that speed all the way back coming off of a significant knee injury? That remains to be seen, but if nothing else, he is sure-handed, and he does have that big body that is very difficult to defend downfield. How about a couple of true freshmen? that are jockeying for playing time. Begins with Jonte Cook, who I think is going to make Longhorn fans very happy throughout his tenure here in Austin, but specifically this year. I think he's one of those dudes that defenses will sleep on early on. Wouldn't that be fun if it happened against Alabama? But we'll learn very quickly the six skills that Jonte Cook has at wide receiver, despite only being a true freshman. Ryan Nivlet, another guy who is lightning fast. DeAndre Moore out of California has also done some nice things too. We may not see a ton of him on the field, at least when the reps matter a little bit more, but he will likely be out there at some point in the second half consistently as Texas is putting it to Rice. And since we're going to lump the tight end position into the wide receiver position. How about record-setting tight end Jatavian Sanders? JT Sanders, who has been turning heads going all the way back to high school when he was truly a man amongst boys. Well, guess what? That remains the case in college, as he proved with a record-setting year for Texas tight ends last season. A lot of people are predicting that he may catch less balls this year, maybe go for a little bit less in the way of yardage, but his receptions mattering a whole lot more too, just in terms of the pressure situation with which he is catching the football, or perhaps it's something as simple as the defense picking the wrong poison, Jatavian Sanders being too open, and using that massive body and insane athleticism to go along with to break huge plays. Gunnar Helm. Another nice option at the tight end position. People think of him more as an in-line blocker, but this is a guy who is a 
pass-catching threat coming out of high school. So he has done what has been asked of him so far, but may very well show some nice things as a pass catcher too. I feel like we saw a little bit of that last year. So that's what the wide receiver room. Reason two, reason B, I don't know how you're listing them, but another reason why Steve Sarkeesian feels so good about things. He sees an insane amount of diverse talent in that receiving core. And he should be licking his chops because he has guys who can do a lot of different things. Some who can do at least a little bit of everything, too. And I, for one, am extremely excited to see how that bodes for this Longhorn passing attack. Let's go for, I don't know, depending on how you're ranking it, reason two or three why Steve Sarkeesian should be confident on offense. How about an offensive line that returns all five starters for the first time for this program since the early 1990s? Yes, we're talking 30 years since the Texas Longhorns had five returning starters on the offensive line. At the end of last season, it looked like it might only be four. But then Christian Jones announced that he would be coming back for one more year. Hey, thanks, COVID. Gave Christian Jones one more year in college. And while Kelvin Banks gets a lot of attention at left tackle, and deservedly so, a freshman All-American at left tackle last year, and I believe he did garner either all-conference or second-team honors, too, and looks to be one of the best in the country this year, and projected to be a top 10 draft pick in that 2025 draft, you should not be sleeping on Christian Jones. This is a guy who really showed that development, has flourished greatly under Coach Flood, and has actually set himself up to earn an NFL paycheck here in several months. Is he going to be a first-round pick? No, probably not. But he likely will be drafted somewhere, especially if he continues to take positive steps forward from the player that he became last year. And he was more than adequate at that right tackle position. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of pundits who are saying that Texas has the two best tackle combination in the entire Big 12. And that puts them up there for having two of the best tackles nationally too. Hard to argue that. The middle is maybe a little bit more of a question mark, but again, you return starters there. And by the way, one of those starters isn't even starting right now. Cole Hudson, who did have off-season surgery. He missed spring ball. He's back and he looks good, but another five-star lineman who came in as part of Kelvin Banks' class has started to show enough signs of development that he is now considered a starter. That would be the massive greater DJ Campbell, who looks to be starting at right guard tomorrow. So pay attention to how DJ Campbell looks, and let's see how Cole Hudson is used. They consider him a bit of a Swiss Army knife, where he's backing up more than one position, And there was a lot of thought given to just turning him into a straight-up center. And I realize that hasn't happened just yet. Texas obviously has a returning starter at the center position, too. Let's see where Hudson plays most of his snaps tomorrow. Talked about the offensive line. Talked about the receivers. Talked about the quarterback, the tight ends. And yes, we do have the running back position. 
It is no secret that Texas is replacing a lot at running back. After all, Bijan Robinson proved himself to be one of the all-time greats at that position over the last three years. He's about to be starting for the Atlanta Falcons. And Roshan Johnson, who could have started for, I don't know, a hundred different programs in college football, but he was Bijan's backup, as well as maybe the most important team leader on last year's team, also earning an NFL paycheck. He's with the Chicago Bears. Don't be surprised if he's starting at running back at some point for the Bears this season. So there is a bit of a void there. But the good news is that there are some capable guys, guys who have been on campus already, and the five-star true freshman who was literally the best running back in the country, according to On3, and their industry rankings. And a lot of people felt like the incumbent would be Jonathan Brooks. He was back up to the backup last year, but given an opportunity against scrub opponents and mop-up duty, he showed you something. And then he actually put that into action when the carries mattered a little bit more. In the Alamo Bowl, that lost to Washington. Now, he did go through a hernia in the offseason and surgery that kept him out for spring ball, but the thought was that he would be back 100% for the start of fall practice. And we haven't received any indication that he wasn't that until now, until earlier this week when Inside Texas said, you know what, C.J. Baxter is probably starting the game on Saturday. Which, the it is maintained that that is because he has put in the effort and made the necessary improvements, but it's hard not to wonder about Jonathan Brooks too. All right, that is it for the offensive side of the ball. Coming up on the other side, we'll talk about that Texas Longhorns defense. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Back with a Friday edition of the Night Talker. Spent the first couple of segments celebrating the start of college football. I don't care about week zero. I don't really care about last night's game or tonight's games for that matter either. I am a Longhorn fan, so the season starts tomorrow. The Texas Longhorns kicking off at DKR against the Rice Owls. That is a 2.30 kick. It is going to be hot as hell tomorrow, so make sure to try and stay cool as possible if you're going to be watching that game in person. My family is planning on being there in person right now. Daughter was sick today, stayed home from school. Told her it may not happen. What if you're still a little bit sick? She insists she is going to be better tomorrow, but we shall see. Before we get to the defensive side of the ball for Texas, do need to make mention of this real quick. It looks as if the ACC has, in fact, given the okay to three new members. Starting in 2024, that's right, Cal, Stanford, and SMU, come on down. You are the next contestants in college football realignment. Congratulations to those three schools for becoming a part of a conference that is still technically considered Power 5, but if I'm being completely honest with you people, I have a feeling this may spell the end for the ACC as we know it. It is going to drop down into that next tier of conferences, and it's not really going to be a Power 5 or G5 thing anymore. It's going to be a Power 2 and everybody else. And while 
people say that this will give more money to the current member institutions, and that may be true, it still doesn't make sense as to why you would add SMU, Cal, or Stanford unless there is another less talked about reason. And that less talked about reason was actually tweeted out by Brett McMurphy earlier this week. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And this is the first time I've been able to truly understand why the ACC is actually adding Stanford, Cal, and SMU. It has everything to do, well, this isn't going to be a shock because this is kind of what everybody has said from the jump. It has everything to do with money, though. But according to Brett McMurphy, and I'm just going to read this statement verbatim from earlier in the week before Stanford, Cal, and SMU were approved. One reason the ACC is considering Stanford, Cal, and SMU is ESPN's media rights deal with the ACC allows ESPN to renegotiate, which potentially means reduced revenue, if the league drops below 15 members. With potential future departures of Florida State, Clemson, and possibly others, the ACC is... This doesn't really make sense, Brett McMurphy. The ACC considering Power 5 schools now as opposed to G5 schools later to maintain required membership number. So this is all about a basic number that would allow them the argument to still remain a member of the Power 5, something that doesn't even exist anymore. The Pac-12 has two schools left, thanks to you guys. Not that the Pac-12 is going to remain around anyhow. But now you have essentially assured that Florida State, Clemson, and possibly North Carolina and North Carolina State are going to find a new home. Now, I struggle to figure out where NC State brings any sort of value to, let's say, a Big Ten or an SEC. But that's the thought right now. And those are the four schools, by the way, who were opposed to this with a straw vote just a couple weeks ago. But here we are. Congratulations to SMU. I mean, you were an afterthought even to the Big 12, but you now find yourself as a future member of the ACC. Along with Stanford and Cal, look, I guess academics come into the equation a little bit. A little bit. Atlantic Coast Conference. I I saw somebody mention on Twitter earlier today that it just needs to be a simple name change. Go from Atlantic Coast Conference to all coast conference. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. You're still going to have egg on your face. It's still idiotic that you added Stanford and Cal. Congratulations, you got to the numbers. Couldn't you have gotten to the numbers somewhere in your region, though? Like, I guess I understand Stanford. And by the way, at least Stanford and Cal, this is only for three sports. This isn't going to be for all the Olympic sports. You're not even getting what Stanford is best at. Probably going to be members of the... Mountain West or Pacific Coast Conference. I don't even know if that last conference is really a thing. But the ACC will have three new members next year, and we will see if they lose two to three members prior to next season getting going. Do we need to return to that Texas Longhorn football preview? We've talked about the offense up to this point. Let's talk a little defense now. The defensive line is going to be good. It is one of the most stacked defensive lines in the entire country. And yes, that includes some powerhouse SEC schools. They not only have highly touted guys, guys who came out as four or five stars, but guys who have really proven it over the last few years too. 
You throw some younger players into the mix now, and this does look like a unit that is going to help make everything easy, or easier, I should say, at the other levels on defense. If there's a question mark on the defensive line right now, it's what happens at that edge rusher position that seems to have been devoid of talent over the last couple of years. Steve Sarkeesian's first two years in Austin. Folks hope they have their first, second, and third down answers now based on how things have played out in spring and in fall practice. And how about Ethan Burke, the former Westlake kid? I want to say he was a three-star recruit coming out of Westlake. A late flip from Michigan, I believe, to the Longhorns. In year two, it looks like he has developed enough and shown enough in the practice setting and those scrimmage settings to take over at that edge rusher position on first and second downs. Will he be the third down guy? Maybe. But I also think on those third and obvious passing situation moments that we will see Anthony Hill substituted for Ethan Burke and let this true freshman pin his ears back and get after that quarterback. People have compared him to the second coming of Micah Parsons. Gosh, I hope that's true. Because we know what Micah Parsons does to opposing offenses. Don't want to put too much pressure on the guy, but I also know that Pete Kwiatkowski has been around a long time, and he realizes when he has somebody special, understands how to deploy that player to maximize his strengths. And while Anthony Hill is taking baby steps and learning uh, some of the other things that he needs to do as a linebacker to be on the field the first couple of downs... Let him do what he's good at right now. Let him build that confidence and slowly insert him in some of those other spots. I actually think that Hill's listed position linebacker is the position group, regardless of the side of the ball, that I am most concerned with right now. And that's a weird thing to say because Jalen Ford was so good at inside linebacker last year. A lot of people believe, and I completely agree with this, that he was robbed of Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year honors. Triple-digit tackles, forced a bunch of turnovers, many of which came at crucial points in games to help the Longhorns seal a victory in said games. But whatever. Just add to that chip on the shoulder, Jalen. And I consider him to maybe be the most indispensable player on this entire roster. That's right. Even more than Quinn Ewers or Kelvin Banks. Not just because of how good he is, and he may very well be the best player on the defensive side of the ball for the Longhorns, but because he's at a position group that doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle room. It's one of the few position groups left on this roster that doesn't have at least decent depth. Especially now that... Fellow linebacker Maurice Blackwell is going to be out for likely the first couple weeks of the season. That puts a much bigger onus on the guy standing next to Jalen Ford on first and second down. That would be David Benda. It's kind of the incumbent at this point. There aren't a ton of other options. So David Benda, while it does sound like he has started to figure some things out, Did kind of win that job by default. And he's going to get tested a lot by opposing offenses. And you damn well know that Alabama is going to try and find ways to isolate him in that game with their renewed focus on a power rushing attack to take pressure off of that question mark at quarterback. They're not going to run at Jalen Ford. 
probably going to send some double and triple teams to Jalen Ford if they can at times. They're going to see if they can get David Benda in space and force some missed tackles. And if defensive backs aren't in the right position, well, you'll see what happened here in Austin last year where Jace McClellan broke off that huge touchdown run that turned out to be a difference in that game. So pay attention to that other inside linebacker spot. Will Anthony Hill progress quickly enough to ultimately take over there? Or will David Benda make that his job and make it difficult to argue somebody else into that spot, especially on early downs? We shall see. My fingers are crossed. And I can't wait to see what this Texas secondary is capable of. Ton of competition at quarterback. Ryan Watts, incredibly physical out there. I think there are some flaws in terms of his coverage, but uh, he got fortunate last year, and so we didn't see him get burned far too often. Hopefully, he has continued to work to improve on his coverage skills this offseason. The other side, is it going to be Terrence Brooks or Gavin Holmes? I always assumed Terrence Brooks because we saw some nice development for him out at the end of the 2022 season, but Gavin Holmes was a multi-year starter at Wake Forest. And is certainly not taking no for an answer in terms of whether or not he's going to be a starter. Jade Barron may be the best cornerback on this team, even though he plays that nickel position. Fierce competitor. Very physical, despite the fact that he's not the biggest dude out there. And then the safety position. Jaron Thompson, ball hawk. Jalen Catalan, ball hawk. And bowling ball, too, by the way. Can he last for 12 regular season games? I don't know. He plays very physically. He's had some injury issues, well-documented at Arkansas. But you also know that he was an all-SEC performer at safety as a true freshman for the Razorbacks. So if he can stay out there, watch out. All right, that is it for the Texas Longhorns preview for the upcoming season. Coming up, it's Where Are We At in Society Oh my goodness, and gambling DJs have gone way too far. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right, it is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out, but sadly, tonight is not that night. And we start in Massachusetts. That's right, land of the mass hole. And some gambling degens have reached a new low. And I say this as somebody who loves playing the sport of volleyball. Am I going to be gambling on the sport of volleyball anytime soon? No, probably not. And I am definitely not going to be gambling on backyard volleyball tournaments. But police in Milford, Massachusetts have uncovered a massive illegal gambling ring centered around backyard volleyball tournaments. They estimate that around a million dollars each year changed hands at this home. Organizers set up the operation with volleyball games, picnic tables, and a concession stand selling fried food and booze. From Milford Deputy Police Chief Robbie Tosino, quote, I was blown away. I even said to the owner after the fact, I got to tell you, I thought I was walking into Foxwoods. 
Foxwoods is a huge casino in Connecticut, for those who are unfamiliar. The tournaments were apparently hidden in plain sight, too. Literally less than a block from police headquarters. Police have been monitoring the situation for months after neighbors regularly complained about traffic and noise coming from the home. From a neighbor, quote, There's about 100 people there every night. There's a lot of people there. It's illegal. You can't do it here. They got a place for it, not the back of the house. Participants bet on everything from volleyball to card games. The tournaments attracted teams from as far away as South Carolina. Gamblers would wager up to $30,000 per night every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, according to NBC Boston. From Officer Ticino again, quote, It's gone from something that was wholesome and pure, and a criminal element came into it, and people are profiting. There uh, was one person arrested, a woman named Zoila Castro, who was charged with selling liquor without a license. The property owner was also brought into custody, and police think that there may be up to six similar tournaments around the community for backyard volleyball. And I see a picture here in this New York Post article. I mean, this really is a janky operation, folks. The game is set up in the middle of the street. The net is attached to a light pole on one side of the street and literally a tree on the other. The net is about half the height, I would say, of a regular volleyball net. And just some real DJs looking like they're ready to play some volleyball. I'm guessing there's a lot of illegal hand setting going over this net. But unfortunately, that is very much an esoteric comment because most of you people are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. But just trust me, the next time you play 12-on-12 volleyball, most of what you're doing is illegal in volleyball. All right, I'll get off my high horse now. Speaking of illegal and speaking of DJs. Sure, you've heard by now about the two people who were wounded, gunshot wounds while attending a Chicago White Sox game within the last week or so. Well, it was reported just a few days ago by Peggy Kaczynski, who works for ESPN Chicago now, and reported on said ESPN Chicago station, ESPN 1000. She tweeted this out too. The shooting at Guaranteed Rate Field, former Comiskey, during a White Sox game was indeed an accidental discharge by one of the women, quote, grazed by the bullet. She reportedly snuck the gun in past metal detectors, hiding it in the folds of her belly fat. Oh my goodness. Fair question is, how fat was she? Well, fat enough that she could hide a freaking gun in her rolls. And I'm guessing so fat that the metal detector couldn't even detect it. Can't metal detectors detect titanium rods that have replaced bone inside a person? 
Does fat throw the medical metal detectors off that much? If so, that's a problem. I feel like we've been sold a bill of goods on these metal detectors. All you got to do is be extremely overweight and apparently, well, I guess you have to have a couple of kids too. Apparently, you're going to be sneaking a bomb through the airport. Not saying you should do that, by the way. I'm just saying I no longer trust these metal detectors. If a couple rolls of fat allowed a woman to sneak a freaking gun into a baseball game. But congratulations, White Sox fans. Your level of degeneracy has somehow reached new highs or lows, as I guess it were. Moving on now to paper straws. That's right. They're everywhere. They're all over Austin. Although I feel like they have gone down in the last few years too as people realize paper straws are disgusting. You are better off with no straw than a paper straw because what is a paper straw going to do in liquid? Well, it's basically just going to fall apart and dissolve into that drink. It certainly doesn't taste good. You can taste the particles of paper that you are consuming every sip that you take with a paper straw and it's not even really all that good for mixing. After the first couple of mixes, it's just just a soggy mess. It's what happens to paper and liquid. Well, we may have another issue with these straws, which are an attempt to help out the environment, although I think the argument could also be made that it's a very misguided effort for what the actual payoff is versus plastic straws. Paper straws, according to Belgium researchers may not be the eco-friendly drinking tubes that they've been promoted as. These researchers found that paper straws are toxic and therefore potentially worse for the environment than plastic straws, according to a new study published in the journal Food Additives and Contaminants. From the study's author, Timo Groffin, who's a PhD environmental scientist at the University of Antwerp. Straws made from plant-based materials such as paper and bamboo are often advertised as being more sustainable and eco-friendly than those made from plastic. However, the presence of PFAS substances known as forever chemicals They have these chemicals which last for a long time before they break down. That means that these straws are not as good for us as we once thought. This new research, by the way, comes following multiple initiatives in New York's, in uh, U.S. cities, rather, including New York, and restaurant ch- chains that are essentially banning plastic straws. Now, the plastic straws, let's not act like they're great for the environment either. But again, it's pick your battle here. And what is the trade-off? And is the trade-off that worth it for the effort that has to be made? And by the way, the degradation in quality too. From New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio back in 2018, quote, their time has come and gone, talking about plastic straws. I believe we should get rid of plastic straws. This is when he introduced a proposal to ban restaurants and bars from distributing plastic straws. A lot of other countries have done so wholesale too, by the way. Belgium, one of those countries where this study came out of. The UK. United Kingdom has completely done away with plastic straws too. 
But this new research does suggest that the paper straws, not great for us either. Researchers actually analyzed the PFA concentrations of 39 brands of drinking straws, which were comprised of different materials. So paper, bamboo, glass, stainless steel, and plastic. They found that paper straws were the most PFA filled with a whopping 90% of paper straws containing the chemicals. That means they're worse than plastic straws. Meanwhile, bamboo straws, which is another highly touted green alternative, came in second with 80%. Plastic straws, 75%. So not a whole lot better, but still a little bit. Glass straws were 40%. And the steel straws had none, but I do wonder about, I don't know, Micro metals from the metallic straws. Maybe that's just a reach by me. So there you have it. The next time you go to a restaurant, and you will most certainly go to a restaurant here in Austin that insists on giving you a paper straw, you can go ahead and let them know, oh, actually, by the way, the level of forever chemicals in this paper straw is higher than that of a plastic straw. So are you really doing that good, or are you just virtue sipping? See what I did there? All right, that is it for another edition of the show. Thank you so much for listening tonight. We'll be back on Tuesday. That's because we're off for Labor Day. Thank you to the ESPN Brass for that one. In the meantime, enjoy week one of the college football season, including those Texas Longhorns hosting the Rice Owls tomorrow at 2.30 at DKR. Talk to you on the other side. In the meantime, sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellis.